All right, Philippians chapter 2 and talking about humility this morning. Some of you may remember uh, years ago, I think I shared it in here. Some of you may remember the story of one of my most embarrassing moments that actually happened in a, uh, in a grocery store. Um, am I feel like I'm in stereo feedback. There we go. Uh, happened in a grocery store. Can you still hear back there, I think? Happened in a grocery store. Uh, it was about this time of year because I remember it being cold and I remember that uh, it had been right, it was right after Christmas because I was wearing this really awesome uh, Eddie Bauer fleece jacket that I had just gotten for Christmas and these brand, a brand new pair of L.L. Bean duck boots that I had just gotten for Christmas. It was in Greenville, South Carolina. It was midday and I had decided that I was going to go to the grocery store and I was going to go to the, uh, the delicatessen and I was going to get a sub made there exactly the way I wanted and I was going to grab a bag of chips to take back to the office so I could just have the chips for lunch and then also uh, continue to uh, enjoy them um, throughout the week. I was going to grab a two liter of, of Diet Coke and as I was going into the grocery store there at midday and watching people around me, I had this, I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I look like a pretty good looking, well accomplished young man. I look pretty good in this brand new gray Eddie Bauer jacket. And uh, I'm pretty pumped about these duck boots I have on. I'm, I remember feeling really confident that day. I went up to the deli. I, I had them make the sub exactly how I wanted it. I tucked the sub. I had it tucked under one hand. I actually got the the, the, the long one so I could, again, have it for lunch later in the week because as an accomplished young man, I was being smart about lunch later on that week. So I had the sub. Um, I, got a, I grabbed a bag of chips. I had it in the other arm, and I was turning down uh, the aisle where the Cokes are, you know, long aisle, Pepsi on this side, Coke products on this side, and I'm walking along like this, <clears throat> and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the, there's the Diet Coke. And I remember turning like this, and as soon as I turned, my feet just started doing this like I was on ice. And I was really confused, very confused, because as I was doing this and looking at the floor, there, there appeared to be nothing on the floor. So I'm doing this, and, and I finally try to catch myself. I put uh, my, my hand down like I'm doing, like, you know, the, the three-point football stance with my sandwich tucked under one hand, the bag of chips in the other. And uh, I look around, there's nobody, there's nobody in the aisle, and I go to go back up again. And as I push back up again, my feet start doing the same thing, and I'm just slipping like this. And I'm really, really confused, because I do not understand why it feels like I'm on ice. And I do the whole thing again, and I catch myself with my other hand, and I'm getting a little distraught about this whole thing. This is happening pretty rapidly, but these emotions are flying. I'm like, this is, what's going on? I'm confused. This is weird. I don't look as cool anymore. And, uh, I do one more time, I push up to, uh, to, to kind of stand up, and my feet do that again, and I, and I just lose it. And I chest plant onto the floor in the grocery store aisle uh, in the mid midday. Chest plant onto the floor. As I chest plant, of course, in one arm under the, the sandwich just gets smashed. It's just, I'm just under this. And then the, the best part, I just, I timed it perfectly or hit perfectly because the chip bag blew out both sides at the same time, like poof. And chips just go. And I am now like fully prostrate on the floor of the grocery store, extremely confused with a mashed sandwich and chips popped out on the other side. As I kind of push up, I get, there's some kind of liquid. I don't know if it was Sprite or water, but it was clear. Now it's, now my jacket, my fleece jacket is soaked on the front. 
I look around the aisle and I'm so thankful that no one is there. <laughs> and I get up and kind of move back. And y'all, I went from like, I'm a pretty, I'm probably the best looking guy in this, uh, in this, in this grocery store, to totally humiliated. Uh, and I was so humiliated that I actually just left the sandwich and the chips and I just walked out of the grocery store. I didn't, I was like, you know, I'm just going to go back to the office and skip lunch. This is awful. Um, now, I'm thankful. I think no one saw me except whoever was reviewing the security tapes later. Um, and I was always worried that for the next year I might show up on America's Funniest Home Videos <laughs> with, that, uh, with that amazing scene. Um, you know, when we think about humility, when we think about humility, we have a tendency almost always to think of it in terms of the result of, of some fail, some failure, some... Uh, uh, some moment of, uh, like that in a grocery store, or as a result of, of some sin that we needed, we needed to be humbled. You might say, hey, it was all of the above for you, Todd. That day, it was, it was sin, and you needed to be humbled, and clearly you failed. And we often think of humility coming as a result of, of that. But when you look at biblical humility, when you look at biblical humility, there's something else there. There's something that's not just, it's not about about failure or about sin or about needing to be humbled but it's something almost entirely different or in a completely different category and in my study this these past two weeks as I've looked at biblical humility what I've discovered is this is the very core of biblical manhood and I didn't I actually didn't anticipate I knew this is important but I would tell you this morning I think that biblical humility is the very core of biblical manhood now you would say, well, isn't this passage we're going to look at, doesn't it apply to women as well? Yeah, it does apply to women as well. Sure it does. But I know that this is especially a problem for men in general. That, that, that our, our struggle with pride and embracing humility is something that is especially difficult uh, for us as men. And I know that it's, in, it's really infected our culture, a uh, lack of humility, a lack of biblical humility. And sadly, brothers, it's infected our, our churches. Where we as men haven't learned how to display biblical humility. And so I'm excited about the opportunity for us to look at this passage and unpack what does is, what is biblical humility look like? And why is it so important? Why is it core to who we are? We're going to be reading from first, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 3 and we're going to read through verse Eight. And that's an unusual thing for someone to do because really verse 1 through verse 11 encompass all of Paul's thoughts here. Actually, if you go back to verse 27 of chapter 1, it would encompass all of Paul's thoughts here. Where it goes from Paul saying in chapter 1 verse 27, you need to, we need to live a, a life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what it says. Live your life in a, wor in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and he's talking to them about the factions and divisions that exist within their church and there's relationships and he encourages them to unity. And then he talks about this mindset of humility he wants them to have. And then he goes on to give the example of Christ, which leads all the way to Christ's exaltation. But what I want us to do this morning is just to focus in on the issue of humility and the, and the example of Christ himself. So begin, I'll begin reading at verse <clears throat> 3. Follow along with me. Paul writes this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's two things I want us to see here. You see that in the notes. And the first in verses 3 through 4 is this call to humility. This call to humility. I love what Andrew Murray uh, wrote about this. He said, humility is the only soil in which the virtues of biblical manhood can take root. Humility is the only soil in which the virtues of biblical manhood can take root. If we are going to be God's men, we've got to get this right. This isn't something that you go, oh yeah, you know, you have humility, you have gentleness, uh, you know, you have patience, uh, you have courage, you have faithfulness, uh, you have leadership. And, you know, that's just one of these categories. And, you know, I'm good at these things, but I'm not necessarily good at humility. I think what we understand from God's word is if you're not good at humility, you're not good at those other things. This is the core of all and we've got to get it right. <clears throat> Paul begins by some things that we've got to reject there in, in the beginning of verse 3. Things that we must reject. He says two things. First of all, he said, um, do nothing from selfish ambition. It's the first thing. And do nothing from conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I love the way that John Murray, not to be confused with Andrew Murray before, he puts it when it comes to how you, def- how you uh, uh, translate those, those words from the Greek. It would be this. Number one, self-centered ambition. Self-centered ambition. And then conceit is probably better described as baseless pride. Self-centered ambition and baseless pride. Paul says what we must reject as men, as followers of Christ, what we have got to reject in our lives and in, and in everything around us, we have got to reject in ourselves our self-centered ambition. And we've got to reject baseless pride or empty pride. Like things, a pride that has, that there's no substance to it whatsoever, which is really the center of, our, of, of sinful pride. And it's important to recognize as you study through Scripture that self-centered ambition and baseless pride, that, that pride that is the opposite of biblical humility, it's not just a bad thing, brothers. It's satanic. That kind of pride is not just something that's like, ah, we should avoid that. I'm just, it, it is actually satanic. Why, why would I say that? Turn in your Bibles uh, first to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14, we'll read a few verses there. In Isaiah 14, we have a glimpse into what, what happened uh, prior to uh, the creation of the world. In regards to this, this angel called Satan, where he went from being one of the key 
uh, among God's host to being the, the very form of evil. Isaiah chapter 14, begin reading verse 12. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. The fall of Satan was a, res- was a result of pride, of baseless pride, of self-centered ambition that wanted to put himself in front of God. There's another place that we see this displayed as it enters into our world. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3 and see the words that are there just at the beginning of Genesis 3. As now Satan is going to come before Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, and I'll just read for us the first four verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan temptation to Eve and Adam and Eve was you will be like God don't you want that don't you don't you isn't that your ambition to make yourselves like God brothers we have got to reject in our lives we have got to reject self-centered ambition and baseless pride it we need to run from it as something that is satanic it is it is it's not just a It's not just a character flaw. It's something that is from the pit of hell itself. We need to see it that way. And then Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 and offers us some things in this call to humility that we must embrace. He says there we must embrace two things. One, to count others more significant than ourselves. And two, to look for others' interests more than ourselves. Two things. I've got to look at the people around me and consider them more important, more significant than me. I've got to treat the person next to me as more significant than me. And this has nothing to do with, with how we've attained anything in life. This has nothing to do with brand new Eddie Bauer jackets and Hello Bean Boots. This has nothing to do with what our jobs are. This has nothing to do with uh, what our histories are. This is me looking at another person who's created in the image of God and saying, okay, I am supposed to embrace this attitude where my concern for you as a significant person on this planet is more important than me. And I've got to look at your needs. It doesn't say I don't look at my needs too. But my first action is to look at your needs and not mine. And that's, and it's not saying just Christians. It's saying all humans, all those creating the image of God. I've got to look at them 
and I've got to consider them more significant than me, and I need to treat them that way because I need to look at their needs, and I need to, I need to first take care of their needs before I take care of my own. Brothers, this is a radical paradigm shift from what we even experience in the church. We have a tendency to, to assume, especially as Americans, and again, you, you guys hear me say this, this is just a call. You, when I'm talking, we're, we live in America, so we need to talk about our culture, and we need to, we need to be honest about it. If I were speaking, you know, in, uh, in Central Africa, I'd be talking about their culture and how their culture affects things. We just need to recognize, as Tim Keller said, that if God is God, uh, he does by de- definition transcend all cultures and offend all cultures. There is no culture on the face of the planet in the history of the world that has embodied everything that it means to be a follower of Christ. <laughs> so that's why I say that. We just need to deal with the culture that we live in. I'm not bashing America in any way. I'm just saying, let's be honest. In our, in our individualism and in recent decades, our, our emphasis on expressive individualism, listen, I gotta be my person. I gotta make it about me. I gotta tell my story. That is a hindrance to us understanding what it really means to walk as men. I gotta take care of my rights. These are my rights. I deserve this. Um, that is an antithesis to what we're seeing here. This is a paradigm shift. You know, there was a, uh, there was a, <clears throat> a, a, excuse me, a college, he played in the NFL. He actually became an actor. So maybe some of you are younger, just probably know him as an actor. Um, but in the 80s, uh, he was an amazing linebacker. His name was Brian Bosworth, and he played for uh, University of Oklahoma. And uh, this guy, this guy was, was fast, and he was huge, and he just, he just hit like a freight train. And the guy was a mean son of a gun, too. I mean, he, he boasted in Sports Illustrated about not only, like, trying to literally take uh, quarterbacks and running backs out of the game with injury. He boasted about that. He boasted about spitting in their faces when they were down underneath the pile. Um, this guy was flamboyant. Uh, he, had, he had spiked hair, and, and uh, he used to shave the sides of his head and kind of put in, like, colors on the side of his head. And, uh, I mean, he was... But he was fun to watch, you know, because this guy, you know, he talked cocky and he was prideful, but you kind of go, it wasn't, was it really baseless pride? Because, I mean, the guy put, he, the guy did what he said he was going to do, right? I mean, he, he just, it was amazing to watch. And he was the kind of guy that you're like, man, that is football. That is football. That's a leader. That's, that's the guy, you know, I want to be like, maybe not the spitting thing, but everything else, man, that's just, uh, that's just cool. He was asked once in an interview what player he hated the most. And he named this running back from the University of Colorado. I I have forgotten the guy's name. But he named this running back from the University of Colorado. And, of course, they would play every year because they were uh, in the same (coughs) league at the time. And um, they asked him, well, why do you hate him? He said, because he never gets gets mad at me. And he's he's always congratulating me. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, I hit this guy so hard. I mean, I will just knock him off his feet and just slam him to the ground. And when I'm there, I just shove my, you know, my elbow, forearm into his chest to make sure he stays down. And every time he pops up, pats me on the back and says, hey, good tackle, Boz. And it just makes me so mad. And I remember reading that and thinking to myself, okay, 
As a follower of Jesus, which man am I supposed to be? My world is telling me, and at this time I, I'm in college, in fact, I'm the same age as Brian Bosworth. Man, this guy looks like the guy I want to be. He's a leader. He's, he's accomplished. Yeah, the spitting thing, that's bad. But everything else. But boy, as a follower of Christ, there was something in my heart that said, I, this, this Colorado running back dude, there's something about that. There's something about playing the game and getting smacked so hard and, and, and pushed down. And, and your response is, man, that was, a, that was a great tackle. Good tackle, man. And running back to the huddle. This is a paradigm shift for us. And while it might look obvious in, 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 a, in a game like football, maybe it doesn't look so obvious in your workplace or in your school and your relationships. But we're called to embrace this in a completely new way. To look at it God's way and not the world's way. And then Paul goes on and says, listen, I want you actually to have a different mindset. You see that there in, in verse, uh, verse 5? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want you to have this mindset. If you're going to be a follower of Christ, I want you to have this mindset, this new mindset. What is the mindset that he's asking us to have? He shows us there, now gives us, number two, the example of this humility. Paul takes us to Christ. I love what Nate prayed this morning. We want to behold Christ. We want to behold Christ. And Paul's taking and saying, listen, when you think about biblical humility, this is what I need you to think about. I need you to think about having a new mindset, and this mindset needs to look like what you have in Christ Jesus. We say we're followers of Christ. We're, we want, we're saying, how do we be uh, God's men, men after God's own heart? What is the, the biblical uh, vision of, uh, of manhood, of true manhood, Scripture's vision? This is it, brothers. We're about to see it. Paul's taking us right to Christ and saying, this is what we are to look like. Three things there he unpacks for us. First of all, we can't forget as we look at the example of Christ's humility, we cannot miss the position of Christ. This is key for us to understand why humility is not the result of some kind of failure or the need to be humbled, but biblical humility is in a different category. So the position of Christ, and in understanding the position of Christ, Paul points to two things there in these verses. First of all, he talks about Christ being in the form of God. And second of all, he talks about Christ being equal with God. And those are two things. I know we've talked about this before in, in different times when we study different parts of Scripture. But the form of God, now that sometimes in our, in our English language we think the form is, doesn't mean actually God. No, but when it's talking about it in uh, even, I would say, even about two or three hundred years ago, when you use the word like that in English, it would mean he is actually God. Not just that he, he's a vision of God or he's a picture of God. The form of God here in the Greek means, no, he is actually God. Or as it says in Hebrews chapter 1, he is the exact imprint of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is God. So the form of God, he is, a, in his position, his, his being is that he is God. So form of God, you can put next to it, being. This is his being. In his being, he is Christ, is God. And then equality with God, 
That's his station. So being, he is God, equality with God, in the Godhead, his station is equal with God. I think sometimes we forget that the, that the uh, position of, of Christ as the Son is not representing that he is somehow um, lacking something. So there's the Father who has more of the Godhead, and there's Christ, the Son, who has less of the Godhead. No, they are God. And I know this is the mystery that is very, that blows our mind. They are God, but in his station, or we talk about it sometimes in theology, his vocation, he was the son to help us understand the Godhead. There wasn't something lacking in Christ that required him to be the son. So he is equal with God, but he doesn't hold on to that. Sometimes I think that our struggle just even to commit ourselves to daily being in the Word is because we really don't grasp. We really don't grasp the beauty and the, and the majesty of Christ. I think, brothers, if we really understood the beauty and majesty of Christ, we would order our entire days, every single day, around a, a time in which we communed with Christ through our reading our Bibles and praying. I heard somebody say this yesterday. Just because you read your Bible every day doesn't necessarily mean you are trying to behold Christ as he is. Just because you read your Bible every day doesn't mean you're trying to behold Christ as he is. But if you don't read your Bible every day, for sure, you are not trying to behold Christ as he is. One of my favorite descriptions of the majesty of Christ is found in Colossians chapter 1. Listen to this. These words are amazing. He, that is Christ, Colossians 1, 15, is the, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were made in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things. And in Christ, all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ, to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers, this is Jesus Christ. He is magnificent. He is, there was nothing that required him, nothing that required him to come down and be the incarnate son. Nothing. There's nothing lacking in Christ that requires him to be the son. There was no, there was no, uh, 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 well, you know what, let's, in the Godhead, you know what, you drew the bad straw. Why don't you go down and take care of these crea creations? And you know what, in his incarnation, as Alistair Begg, sa Begg said, there is not, <laughs> there is no place that Christ could have landed as the incarnate son that would not have been an unbelievable humiliation. In other words, we're like, oh yeah, he was born in a, in a manger, in a, in, a, in a stall, in a cattle stall to these poor people. 
Hey, it wouldn't have mattered if he was born in the court of the greatest, wealthiest king in the history of the world. It still would have been such a humiliation for God to go from that to this. We can't lose sight that there was, there was no requirement that Christ do, did this. And yet, we see in verse 7 the powerful choice of Christ. It says in our uh, Bibles, made himself nothing. The ESV Bible said made, made himself nothing. I think the NIV says something similar. I'm trying to figure out why my ESV Bible doesn't say what my other ESV Bible said. My ESV Bible says he emptied himself, which is an absolute terrible translation of that from the Greek. Um, the best translation, the best way to put it is this. John Murray says the best way to, def- to, to say, translate, made himself nothing would be this. He took no account of himself. He took no account of himself. And he took on the form of a servant. Christ didn't say, you know what, I, I'm God. And these are creatures. They're, they're, they, <laughs> they've rebelled against us. There is no requirement that I as God go do this. And yet, Christ did not hold on to, did not take account of who he was. He didn't grasp onto the equality with God and instead took on human flesh and then made himself a servant. Mark chapter 10 also says that in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ said this, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man, Christ, came to serve, not to be served. And Christ made this choice. It was a powerful choice. So as we think about what it means for us men to, to, to take on biblical humility, what it means is it's a choice we make. It's not God humbling our, humbling our, you need to be humbled, you need to be, it's not, it's not weakness. Christ's humility was not weakness, it was not self-deprecating. Christ's humility was powerful, it was strong. It was from a place of strength that Christ chose to take no account of himself and to choose to be a servant. I love how this is demonstrated in John chapter 13. You got to see this. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is uh, the upper room, beginning of the upper room discourse. So John chapter 13 through John chapter 17. Uh, is a detailed description of what took place on the night that Jesus was crucified. Here we are in the upper room at the Feast of the Passover, at the, what we now call the Lord's Supper. And in chapter 13 of John, verse 1, it says this, Now before the Feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Listen to this, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, had given all things into his hands, 
and that he, Christ, had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper and wrapped a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. From what position did Christ wrap a towel as a servant and wash Judas Iscariot's feet? Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus, knowing who he was. Jesus, knowing that he was God. Jesus, knowing that he was equal with God, that he in his being was God. Jesus, knowing that, literally took on the clothing of a servant and then began to do the work of a servant, even to his betrayer. The position of humility, of biblical humility, is not one that comes as a result of of failure uh, or of needing to be humbled. No, biblical humility comes from a place of knowing exactly who you are. In fact, men, I don't think you and I can demonstrate biblical humility unless we grasp who we are as sons of God. And it's only in that moment that we begin to make that, that we can, out of that, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, make that choice. What hinders us as men from biblical humility? This is what hinders us. Pride. And why do we have pride? Because of our insecurity. It takes a strong man to demonstrate biblical humility. And baseless pride comes from insecurity. guy like, and, and who knows, maybe I, I have not checked up on Brian Bosworth, so uh, he may be walking with the Lord right now. But a man who acts like that is insecure. It's not strong. He's insecure. A man who walks in baseless pride, a, a man, a man who, who walks into a grocery store and thinks he's better because he's got a new jacket and boots on, is insecure. A man who thinks he has to uh, lead the meeting because he's the leader and he has gifts of leadership and he has attained greater position and he deserves a better seat because he has actually worked hard for this, that's an insecure man. That's an insecure man. And actually that insecurity makes him weak. It takes strength to be a man who chooses biblical humility. Christ did what he did in washing those disciples' feet from a position of strength. I know exactly who I am. And because I know exactly who I am, I can serve you. And then that leads us to verse 8, where we see the perfect obedience of Christ. So we, the position of Christ there is in his being, he was God. In his equality, his station, he was equal with God. He made a choice from strength to be a servant. He made a choice to take on human flesh. He made a choice to take no account of himself. Out of that strength, then he finishes it all the way to the end. It's not just a moment. He is faithful all the way to the end. It says that he humbled himself. That's, again, this isn't passive. Biblical humility is not passive. It is very active. 
says he humbled himself and became obedient. Obedient to whom? When it says, hey, the Son of Man did not come to, to serve, but to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many, what, who is he serving? To whom is he being obedient? I love the way, that I, heard, I heard Alistair Begg, some of you know, Alistair Begg is like one of my favorite preachers. And it's not just the Scottish accent, although that is pretty cool. Um, but I remember him uh, years ago, uh, he was speaking to his congregation, and he actually hadn't been there at Park Street Church in Cleveland that long. He's speaking to his congregation, you know, about, about 3,000 people there. And he says to them, pretty boldly for a pastor, he said this, I will always be your servant, but you will never be my master. I'm like, whoa. What? And then as he brilliantly does, he unpacks that. And you know what? Any of you can say, it. that's a description of biblical humility. That's what Christ is saying. I will always be your servant, but only God is my master. That's what Alistair Begg was saying. And that's biblical humility. So he was obedient to his heavenly father, to, to God the Father in the Godhead. That's who Christ was obedient to. So as Christ served here on earth, he was serving us. He was serving humanity. But his obedience, his, we weren't his masters. We weren't determining how he would serve. No, God was determining how he would serve us. And brothers, that's what it looks like for us to display biblical humility. It means this. It means that we know exactly who we are, and we know exactly how God wants us to serve the people around us. And so we truly take on the role of a servant, and it's not dictated by the people around us, but it's dictated by God, and we're actually going to be better servants that way. Sometimes our insecurities lead us to go, oh, you know what, I, we talk about, oh, that guy's just such a servant, or she's such a servant, or he's such a servant. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just people pleasers. And people pleasers don't reflect biblical humility. That reflects our own insecurities. So biblical humility is we reflect the, 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 the uh, example of Christ is this obedience to our Heavenly Father that causes us to be a servant to everyone around us. And how far did this obedience go? This obedience went all the way to death. How far? How far, God, do you need me to be a servant? How much do, to what extent, Lord, do you want me to serve? God's word says, well, to death, as long as I, whatever it costs, even if it costs your life, even if it costs your life, serve. That's what biblical humility looks like. You know, that's, I said early on, it's something that's infected our nation, sadly. I mean, it was, it was, it's always there. It's been in every nation, in every culture, in every pride, baseless pride, self-centered ambition. But I said it has infected the church, and it has. You know, this whole challenge to the issues of things like toxic masculinity and, and abuse within the church um, and abuse within homes... Uh, has come because there has not been a clear understanding of what it means to truly be God's men. We have wrongly grasped, grasped a hold of certain things in our culture and tried to appropriate them 
as that's what it really means to be a man and be strong. But when you look at the example of Christ and you see what it means to be a man and be strong, it means to be someone who takes no account of themselves. It's to be a man who, who looks at the needs of others and not just the people that are like us. I know we're, we're sadly more than ever politically divided in this country. And I know some of you are saying, you know, hey, Todd, don't make this political. Listen, when a preacher's talking nowadays, he's not making it political. Uh, y'all have made this political because we've all of a sudden tried to uh, connect our faith with some kind of political position. And I'm talking to Democrats and Republicans and everything in between. So please, I'm an equal opportunity offender this morning. What I'm saying is this. When I hear about some piece of legislature that my gut says, yeah, from my political standpoint, I don't like that. But then I see other people, maybe who aren't even Christians or even like me, or maybe people that, have, that, that hate me, but I see them saying, no, it needs to be like this. You know what biblical humility means? It means that I actually have to begin by figuring out what is it that they need? not what is it that I need. What is it that they need? You see, brothers, it, as a follower of Jesus, as a son of the King of Kings, as one, uh, and I'm saying this for all of you in here, as one who knows who he is, the image of God, who knows who he is, as one who's been redeemed by Christ, who knows, just like Jesus, where you're going, right? We know where we're going, right? We know if we die today, we're going to heaven, right? Amen? As one who's like that, it literally doesn't matter what happens in this country regarding me. Now, if it affects someone else and I can take care of someone else, I'm going to do that. But as far as me, I don't need to protect me. I know where I'm going. I don't need to look out for me. I don't need to make sure I'm taken care of. I need to figure out how to take care of the people around me, even the people that hate me. That's what Christ did. That was the mindset of Christ. We need to do that in our homes. Nate prayed this. We need to move biblical humility into our homes. And instead of figuring out how I get comfortable when I get home, and brothers, I struggle with this sometimes. I'm, I'm go through a really hard day. I, it's been emotional. It's been stressful. And man, when I get home, everything in me wants to just be like, man, just, you know, Lynn, just give me some time by myself. I don't want to, no, I don't, I don't want to run by the grocery store on the way home, you know. But God's call to the mindset of Christ is for me to figure out how can I take care of Lynn? and give no account of myself. How do I make sure all of her needs are met before I sit down? You do that, Nate said, roommates, neighbors. I gotta figure out how to take care of my neighbors before I figure out how to take care of my house. That's biblical humility. What does it mean to be a man that follows Christ. It means I'm secure in my relationship as his son. I know that I'm his son. It means that I'm confident in his forgiveness and love. Barton taught last week about true repentance. And I know if 
if I go to the Lord in true repentance, I know I will receive his mercy. And I know, not because of anything I've done, that I stand before the Lord blameless because of the clothing of Christ. And if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're blameless. You're free today. You're absolutely free. So you're a dearly loved son. You're absolutely free. And because of that, you're strong enough to walk out of these doors and choose a life of humility. You get to choose to be a servant today. And in that, brothers, we get to gloriously display the very heart of Christ. And it'll be rich. And it'll, it'll bring you joy. And brothers, the church of Jesus Christ desperately needs men who choose this. And this city desperately needs men who choose this. And our nation desperately needs men who will choose biblical humility, the mindset of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, this seems daunting to us. And Lord, we know our insecurities. I know, Father, my insecurities. I know how I'd love to cover things up in my life. I know, Lord, I, I do have selfish ambitions. Some of them are big, Lord. Some of the selfish ambitions we have are silly. Like, I just, I just want to be able to <laughs> sit in my favorite chair tonight and watch Sports Center uninterrupted. <laughs> and Lord, I, I, I see that we, as men, struggle with our selfish ambitions and struggle with our insecurities. Father, would you please pour your spirit into us in such powerful ways that you would remind us again, even this morning, that we are your dearly loved sons. Would you remind us that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness? Would you remind us again that, uh, that we are, are secure in you and we, we know where we're going? Remind us, Father, that we have literally nothing to lose today. And then, Father, by your power, by your Holy Spirit's power, would you, would you help us begin to display in our, in our homes, with our friends, with our roommates, with our wives, with our children, with our coworkers, with our classmates, with the people who, who live on our street, with the people that live across the city, with the people that are not like us, with the people that even hate us. Would you, Father, please help us to serve them, to take on the form of a servant. Give us that wisdom, Father. Give us that strength. And let us, by your grace, display your glory. Pray this all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.